Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. So we're going to look at explore morality in the modern world. Now I wonder uh, what you think or feel as you hear that uh, that's the title of today. I wonder why you've come. Uh, do you feel like you want to explore morality? Is morality something our modern world is interested in? Maybe the first uh, word you, uh, the first thing you hear when you hear the word morality is you think of oppression. You know, morality means rules. No one wants to talk about rules. Our modern world champions freedom. We don't want rules, especially rules given us by the church. You know, what right do they have to tell us how to live? They're hypocrites. And so we have this idea that we're free from the tyranny and deception to, uh, of obeying rules. We're liberated. Uh, and in our world, sort of authority is treated with suspect these days. No one has the right to tell me how to think or behave. As one philosopher uh, put it, uh, let each person do their own thing. And no one should criticize the other's values because they have, right, they have the right to live their own life as you do. The only sin which is not tolerated is intolerance. That's Charles Taylor. That's kind of our modern view, or as another famous philosopher put it, as she walked her way up the snowy mountain, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. That's kind of the modern view. So I wonder if your first thought when you think about exploring morality is a knee-jerking negative one. Don't tell me what to do. I'm free. No one has authority over my life. I decide. And if that's your view, then Christianity will probably feel like the arch enemy of freedom. Christianity is something that will then instill fear and bring restrictions. Maybe your experience of church has given you that reason as well. It's understandable you think like that. And I'll say a bit more about that at the end of the talk. But this idea of freedom, this modern idea we have freedom from all restrictions, freedom to decide how we want to live, is being challenged by lots of people in modern culture. And for two big reasons. The first one is that it's unworkable. For example, we all place limitations on ourselves to gain greater freedoms. For example, a high-level sports person puts limits on their freedom so they can compete at the highest level. Or I think of my father-in-law who has type 2 diabetes and I have two kids and he wants to see his two grandkids grow up so he has to place restrictions on what he eats so he can live longer. In other words, real freedom comes not from a nice slogan that we can do what we want. We cannot do what we want if you want to be an Olympic athlete or grow old and see your grandkids grow up. Real freedom comes from the strategic loss of some freedoms in order to gain others. It's not the absence of constraints, it's choosing the right constraints, the right freedom to lose. A bit like a fish, claiming I'm free to live outside of water. Yeah, you are, but you'll die. We're naive to think we can just live how we want and survive. We have to accept and adapt to the limitations of our physical nature to know the freedom of health. We have to honour the givens and limitations of human relationships to know the freedom of love and social peace. We are not free to choose to do whatever we want. It's a nice slogan, but it's unworkable. It's a lie. The second thing, the challenge that this, this modern view of freedom has, is it's also unfair. Because it denies others what we owe. I'm responsible only to myself. No one has the right to tell me how to live. Well, yes, but that negates shared responsibility. And the recognition of what John, John Donne famously said, that no man is an island. 
I don't know if you saw the magnificent film Calvary with Brendan Gleeson. Uh, uh, it was written by John Michael McDonough. The priest here is struggling with parish life in Sligo. He went into the priesthood later in life, so he has a child, and his daughter has just recently failed in a suicide attempt. And he's trying, in this, in this moment in the film, he's trying to express his concern for her. And she assertively says, I belong to myself, not to anyone else. That's the modern view of freedom, the cultural narrative. Her father answers, Gleason here, true. And then after a long pause, he says false. He's not changing his mind. He's essentially saying there is some truth in what you say about freedom as the way you define it. But that is ultimately false. And when she pushes him and says, well, why? He quietly says, well, it's a tired old argument, I suppose. But what about those you leave behind? She's just trying to commit suicide. In other words, to choose your own life is your freedom, but your freedom affects others. And will strike a blow and inflict pain into many other lives that will maybe never be healed. In other words, what right do you have to use your freedom to darken the lives of others? And so we see a major problem with the modern idea of freedom. It fails to take, it's not only unworkable, it fails to take into account what we owe others. And so we get to this topic today of morality. How do we come up with a morality? What do we know owe others? Historically... Freedom and morality were tied up in being made in God's image and a universal natural law that God had given us that we must obey and in that law we would find freedom to love our neighbour as ourselves. But since modern secularism has ditched the idea of God and a universal moral law that he gives us, we have to find another basis for our morality. So what is the modern secular person's next move when faced with the challenge? Well, it's obvious. You've heard it a hundred times. Maybe you think it. The cultural narratives, the next move our culture makes is to say, oh, I can do whatever I want as long as it doesn't harm anyone. So we come up with this idea of harm to define morality. This harm principle appears to make the freedom of choice into a self-correcting absolute that gives us guidance for life together without any need of value judgments in our world from, from outside. However, there's a problem. Are we all agreed on what harm is? And we're not. You and I might have very different views on what harm is. For example, one man believes that strict laws violate free speech and that he's not harming anyone by consuming pornography in private. A second person responds that if the man watches pornography, he is shaping himself in such a way that will be bad for male-female relationships and affects society. Behind the disagreements about harm are two different ways of thinking about how the individual relates to society and what healthy male-female relationships look like. Of course, we all want to not harm people, but we can't agree on what that is. And any decision about what harms others will be rooted in the idea of human nature and human purpose. But again, since we've ditched the idea of God and that he were made in his image, what, where are we going to come up with this idea of what human nature and human purpose is? Where will we find consensus and authority to decide the purpose of humanity and therefore the moral standards by which we all agree and should live by that don't harm others? We can't. Of course we can't, because we get to decide, remember? There are. We get to decide what's right and wrong. No one tells me. And so you see the problem 
the modern problem of freedom that our world has today, as it defines it, has a greater problem, the problem of morality. Famously, Dostoevsky, in his book Brothers Karamarov, said, without God and the future life, everything is permitted, one can do anything. In other words, you might have moral feelings, but do not kid yourself that we have moral obligation. Think about it. You've just said, we get to define what we want to do. No one can tell me what, you know, what my morality is self-authorizing. All morals should be believed by just that person and they're, they're cultural and they're relative to that person. In other words, how can you then start to talk about moral obligation and moral facts out there that we discover and embrace? And that makes sense. You see, our secular view of humanity, where there's just a material world and no spiritual world, you know, there is no God. We're all here by chance. It's survival of the fittest. There's no ultimate purpose and meaning given to us from outside. Therefore, we have to create our own purpose and meaning and therefore create our own morality, whether collectively or individually. There's no natural law. We're the master of our destiny and our own morality. So there's no such thing as moral obligation. You might have moral feelings. Can you see the problem? Are you starting to feel uneasy? You should be. Most modern philosophers are realizing that the cultural narrative around freedom and morality has huge flaws. And it ends up with what's called intellectual schizophrenia. Tim Keller, if we create our own values individually, on what basis could we urge anyone else to accept them? Or if we create those values collectively, how then can we recommend them to any other culture? We do unavoidably forcibly. Think about it. Right now, there are people living in the world that you disagree with how they are living, and you wish they would stop car bombers in Derry. People trafficking young girls into Eastern Europe, uh, from Eastern Europe into prostitution in Western Europe. I could go on. We all have moral feelings that this is wrong. And while you have a feeling that it's wrong, you cannot talk about moral obligation. How can you tell them to stop? And what right or authority do you have to say that they are wrong? For example, Mary Ruti, the professor of the University of, of Toronto, writes, Although I believe that values are socially constructed rather than God-given, I do not believe that gender inequality is any more defensible than racial inequality, despite repeated efforts to pass it off as a cultural-specific custom rather than an instance of injustice. Notice what she says first, as every modern secular person must, all moral values are socially constructive, they're not grounded in God. And then she hears someone say, well, if that's the case, I don't have to believe what you say about gender equality. Uh, that's just a Western idea. And on the contrary, she retorts, it's not. Gender equality is universal norm to be honoured by all, all cultures. But how can it be? If all morality is person-specific or socially constructed, how can any statement of right or wrong be true for all? In essentially, this a professor and most people today say, your moral values are just socially constructed, but mine are not and therefore true for everyone. This self-justifying, self-contradictory stance is pervasive in our secular culture. Can you see the intellectual incoherence? Please don't mishear me. I am for gender equality and the prevention of car bombs in Derry and for stopping young girls being trafficked into prostitution. Of course I am, and I'm sure you are. That's not my point. What I'm trying to show is that since modern culture on the whole has ditched belief in God as a higher power who gives a moral law and makes us in his image, on what grounds are we able to make statements about moral obligation? We believe in moral obligation, but we have no basis for it. All we can talk about is moral feelings. 
Today, there is no way to justify or even have a conversation about a moral claim with someone who disagrees. All we can do is shout them down. And this happens all the time. If you've been in Ireland for the last five, six years, you'll have heard it at the referenda. We just shout each other down. We don't actually have a conversation. Let me put it like this. In theory, we are moral relatives, re- relativists. We believe everyone should do what they want and define their own morality. But in practice, we are moral absolutists. We believe that our moral facts, moral obligations are given us and everyone should adhere to them. So there's intellectual schizophrenia in our world today. What is the secular response to this moral problem? Where can we turn in secular society to find shared moral sources that we can agree on? Can we look to the social sciences? Yale sociologist Philip Gorsko recently wrote of the failure of social science to develop a satisfactory theory of ethical life that could explain why humans are constantly judging and evaluating. And he basically says there's two main theories out there. The first main theory that people try to ground morality in is evolution. Basically, as our ancestors, you know, evolved, those that felt like self-sacrifice was the right thing to do evolved better than those that didn't feel like it. And so today, that's why we feel that self-sacrifice is a good thing. Uh, But he thinks that theory is inadequate, and he wonders, as do many others, how the current admiration for self-sacrifice, particularly for sacrificing yourself outside of your tribe or family or clan, we would admire that. How could that trait have led to greater rates of survival? But even outside that, the theory fails to explain why our ancestors would have had moral feelings in the first place. So then he goes on to a slightly better idea in his mind, constructivism. This is the idea that we've been exploring so far, that morals are just socially uh, constructed by society and therefore relative. The argument goes something like this. Once upon a time, we thought they were moral universals. Then we discovered that what is forbidden in one culture may be enjoined in another. We realized there's no cosmic law within us, much less in the starry skies above. We concluded that all moral laws are ultimately arbitrary. They are the product of of power, not reason, be it human or divine. Now, he thinks the second theory is better, but uh, he's not satisfied with that. Because in the end, both theories, all they can give you is moral feeling, not moral obligation, not moral facts. That's just an illusion. This is right and wrong, no matter what your genes, what your culture, what your emotions, whether it's practical for survival or society or not, he says, no, that's just an illusion. You have moral feelings. You have no such thing as moral obligation and facts. It's just a trick of biology or society. So all we can say, therefore, is that while we might feel that murder and rape and car bombs in Derry are wrong, you cannot say they are wrong. You just feel they're wrong. And they've either been, we feel that way because it helps us survive as a society or personally. Additionally, a guy called Nicholas Volterstorff puts it like this, almost always those who think and talk of morals as relative are living comfortable, privileged lives. Imagine you're being tortured. Would you be tempted by any of these views? So neither the constructivist or the evolutionist view has a category for evil. So can you see the big challenge? The morality places on our modern culture who's ditched a view in God and a higher life. What's the potential answer? How do we get out of this? How do we square the circle? How do we come out of our intellectual schizophrenia? The reason we have the problem, I've been hinting at it the whole way through, is we've lost our understanding of the purpose of humanity. What are we for? Why are we here? To use theological or philosophical language, what is our telos or telos? 
Whether you look back to the Greek philosophers or the early Christian writers, the whole point of ethics is to enable mankind to pass from their present state to their true state. To answer the question, what are humans before, requires some belief in God or divine creation or cosmic spiritual order. For example, the Christian worldview, which I come from, says we are made by God, for God, for eternity. Wow, that's a purpose. Well, we can now start talking about moral obligation within that purpose. Philosopher Alistair McIntyre says that any attempt to find a basis for morality outside of God not only does fail, as we've seen, but has to fail because moral judgments can never be made apart from the examination of a given purpose. To make his case, McIntyre uses the illustration of a pocket watch. Uh, and if we complain that the, uh, the watch is grossly ina- inaccurate and irregular in timekeeping, we are justified in concluding it's a bad watch. Most people, however, would not say that a watch is bad if you throw it at a cat and it doesn't hit it. Why? Because we know that what watches are made for, to tell the time not to hit cats or anything else. If the watch realises its telos, its telos, it's good. If it fails it, it's bad. If for the sake of argument some people came across a watch and had absolutely no idea what it was for, they would have no idea whether it was good or bad and make moral judgments over it. In other words, all judgments that something or someone are good or bad are made when you know their purpose. And so just like Dostoevsky, the famous Austrian philosopher and atheist Friedrich Nietzsche said that because there is no God, there are no moral facts whatsoever. In fact, he said there are no facts, they're just interpretations. So how do we square the circle and escape our intellectual schizophrenia? Well, we must discover again to whom we are responsible. Duty and responsibility only make sense within personal relationship. If there is no one with the right and authority to demand how we live in a certain way, there can be no moral obligation. So maybe there is a person to whom we all know we owe our lives. And in our hearts, we just know that moral obligation, it's not a feeling, it's an obligation, because I know there is someone to whom we owe everything. Let me remind you of a famous moment in the life of Jesus, recorded for us by the Gospel writer Matthew. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which of the, is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, quoting two Old Testament verses, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Notice this Jesus' order. Love God first. That's the ultimate reason we're here. He's the one we owe our allegiance and our life. He's our purpose and our reason for being. And if you know that, well, the second you see Jesus' phrase is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. That's how I find a morality across this way, because I have understood who I owe my life to. In other words, if there is a God of goodness and truth and justice, and we enter into a relationship with that God, shouldn't that goodness, truth and justice manifest itself in human life? Of course. We've rediscovered our telos, our purpose. We're to know and love and enjoy God now and forever. We're made in his image. Every human being has inherent dignity and worth. Therefore, we owe humans every human respect, love and honour. Therefore we can fight for women's equality and we can stop trafficking of young girls into prostitution and we can fight against car bombs and dairy, not just as a moral feeling go, no, this is not how we were made and we owe it to God and one another to live differently. So let me finish by something I mentioned at the start of the talk about the church. Because the church has made a mess of things 
in in the past in the recent past and has lost much of its moral authority um and so people go well you know what right does the church have well ultimately i guess i'm arguing the church doesn't it's god who does and he is the ground not the church of of our morality humans are flawed god is perfect and it's important to mention this because you mustn't take away from this talk that i think christians are more moral than atheists no experience and common sense would not tell you that what I've been arguing for is the basis of morality the fact that I believe the fact that we I think we all believe in moral obligation not just feelings reveals that we believe in a moral law giver whom we're meant to know and love and respond to but here's the great message of Christianity it's not that we are moral and therefore deserve God's love and acceptance and eternal life it's actually the opposite that we are not moral We haven't loved God. We haven't loved our neighbor, whether you're a believer or not. And therefore, we must rely on the mercy and grace of God, which he showed in Jesus, who not only told us this is how you live, love God, love others. He died for us when we failed drastically to do that. And when you discover that, this is the heart of Christianity. That the God of the universe came in and said, this is how you're to live. And you failed and I'm going to die in your place to, to, to deal with all that failure. When you know that, you don't obey God out of fear or duty or tradition, which leads to hollowness, hypocrisy, and all the mess that we've seen in recent history that has so plagued the church. But rather, you are set free. Freedom. I want to love the God who so loved me, and I want to love my neighbor as myself, as he taught me. As one famous hymn writer put it, our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we've seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. We have freedom to live a moral life knowing that this is the life that brings the most joy.